My name is Tom Hallman, and I'm an elder here at Grace Fellowship Church. I've been looking forward to opening God's Word with you this morning. If you uh, want to turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24, I'm a little louder than the average preacher, I think. That's found on page 42 if you have a church Bible. Uh, fun fact, I learned we actually have two different church Bibles. If you have one of the blue ones, it's page 42. If you have the other ones, it's in Exodus 24. The Bible tells us of a tension that exists within its pages. It tells us that there is a wonderful, perfect, altogether holy God who desires to dwell among a wicked, half-hearted, altogether unholy people. See, God created us in his image. And so we have the capacity for goodness, beauty, love, and everlasting life. Yet throughout the pages of the Bible, and even in our own experience, we see that time and time again, when we are offered these gifts, we disregard and forget them, choosing instead wickedness, perversion, hate, and death. The Bible called that sin, and sin always separates. So there's a tension. How can a holy God dwell with his unholy people if sin is constantly pulling us apart? We're going to answer that question from the Bible this morning, and Exodus 24 will help us do so. As a church, we've been going through the book of Exodus chapter by chapter, and it's the story of God's chosen people, Israel, being divinely freed from their captivity in Egypt. God had called the man Moses to be their leader with the help of his brother Aaron. These men confronted Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler of the day. And by God's power, they led the entire nation of Israel straight through the Red Sea on dry ground as they made their escape. Israel now finds itself at a mountain called Sinai. For the, pa for the past several chapters, God has been laying out for Moses the new rules by which he is calling his people, people Israel to live. Uh, and in chapter 23, last week, God reiterates a promise he's made uh, prior to that, that if Israel is willing to obey him, then he will give them their very own land, altogether free from the oppression of their enemies. So as we come to chapter 24 in Exodus this morning, we now face this big question. How can a holy God dwell among his unholy people? And as you'll see on your outline, in your bulletin, our answer begins with a covenant. So let's read the first 11 verses in chapter 24 together. Then he, that is God, said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, 
Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay a hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. This chapter begins with God inviting 75 individuals to come up to him. This included Moses, his assistant Joshua, his brother Aaron, and Aaron's two sons, Nadab and Abihu, along with 70 of the elders of the people. Of these 75 people, God says that only Moses can come near and that everyone but these 75 shall not come up at all. What happens to these 75 pauses in verse 3 and is picked up again in verse 9 because Moses had something God wanted him to do first, and that is to ratify a covenant between God and Israel. So let's talk about these, these words, ratify and covenant. Those aren't words you probably use each and every day in part of your normal speech. To ratify something is to make it official. A law or an agreement may be agreed to verbally, but the ratification process is everyone agreeing together, yes, this is what we want. And a covenant is an agreement between two parties. It's a contract. It usually says something like, if you do X, then I'll do Y. I will pay a monthly amount to Comcast, and they will provide me with high-speed Internet. Okay, so they get my money, and I get to watch Lego Batman trailers on YouTube. That's, that's how covenants like that work. So in this case, Moses is ratifying a covenant between the Lord, the God of Israel, and Israel itself. However, when we read verses 3 through 8, I don't know about you guys, but I read those verses and I'm like, this is kind of weird. Okay, there's some strange stuff going on. There's a whole bunch of words spoken over and over again, and there's writing down of things, there's blood being thrown around. Actually, that does sound a lot like what it's like talking to Comcast, doesn't it? Uh, but, but for the most part, we don't think about making covenants, agreements, contracts in that kind of way. But the covenants and rituals associated with, with actually making covenants together, these types of things, were all common in Israel's days, even though they do sound a little strange to our ears. So let's, let's take a moment and tease apart some of what's going on here. I'll suggest five important aspects of a covenant that we can see clearly in the text here in verses 3 through 8. Number one, clear terms. Clear terms. That is, Israel knew fully what they were agreeing to. Look at verse 3 with me again. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. And then jump down to verse 7. Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. All these words of the Lord were what Moses had been hearing for the past several chapters in Exodus. So there he tells Israel all the words of the Lord, and they together verbally declare that they will do all of them. And then Moses writes it all down. And then he picks up what he wrote, and he read it all again, and Israel agrees to it all again. Okay, so uh, Israel 
the point here is this huge chunk of the chapter is there simply dedicated to this idea that Israel really, really knew what was going on. The terms were made very clear. Okay, that's, that's the first aspect, and that matters because of the second aspect, which is promises. Not only are the terms clear, but then there are promises. Promises, of course, are at the core of any agreement. God had already made his promises throughout the previous chapters, which is part of those clear terms that were outlined. And here, Israel responds not once, but twice, as we've seen, promising all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They promised. Aspect number three is memorial. A memorial. Look back at verse four, about halfway in. Moses rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, so this, this altar represented the Lord and the pillars represented Israel. Memorials are created so that after the covenant is ratified, anyone, even generations later, could go back and look and see the altar, see the pillars, and remember the covenant that was made there. Aspect number four, sacrifice. This part is especially strange to us today. There's usually not an animal sacrifice made when we buy a house or lease a car. But it was common practice back then, and that's what's happening in verse 5. A number of, of young men, probably because of their strength, offer sacrifices of oxen. And that's related to the fifth aspect. Aspect number five is that there's a curse for breaking the covenant. A warning, a curse. There is often an implicit or explicit curse described as a reminder not to break the covenant. So here in verse 6, Moses takes half of the blood and, and stores it and then throws the other half on the altar, which, as you remember, represents God. After going over the terms and making promises once more, Moses then takes that stored blood and throws it on the people. The reason he did that is because the blood thrown on the people was implying if you break this covenant, this will be your own blood that is on you. In fact, that's exactly what happens. Tragically, in chapter 32, the people will break the covenant, and 3,000 will die by the sword on that day, and many more will die on account of a plague. But, for now, Moses declares in verse 8, Behold the blood of the covenant, that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. The covenant is ratified. So, finally, now in perfect, unbroken fellowship with God, these 75 men at last go up the mountain in verse 9. They were called up in the first couple of verses. Now they're going up, verse 9. And what happens next in verse 10 is simply mind-blowing. This is huge. It says, they saw the God of Israel. Now, they are not near. Only Moses will go near. But even partway up the mountain, they saw their God. Moreover, in verse 11, they beheld God and ate and drank. These 75 people had dinner with the God of the universe. This is, this is not like grabbing a burger with a good friend, one on whom you were on equal footing. This is not even like a seven-course banquet with the most prestigious men and women of the United Nations. Okay? They're dining with the one who created them. They are, they're, they're having a meal with the one whose merciful and sovereign will causes the bacteria in their guts 
to digest and utilize the nutrients contained in the very food they were eating. Now remember, this is the one who just five chapters ago told Moses that if anyone other than him came up the mountain, God would break out against them and they would be utterly destroyed. This difference in, uh, in relationship, this, this change is so noteworthy that verse 11 highlights this for us. Check this out. And he, God, did not lay a hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Okay. If my wife, Allie, invite you over to our house for a meal and don't harm you in any way during the time together, that should not be noteworthy. But if you eat with God and come away unscathed, that is worth recording for all generations to read in the Bible forever. How has this happened? How can an altogether holy God dwell with his unholy people? The answer, friends, is that these men were invited to come up to the Lord to dwell in covenant. Though it would only last a short time, these men were, were currently in perfect, unbroken, covenantal relationship with their Creator. And so, they had dinner. So, so how do we interpret what's going on here? What, what, what does this mean? Well, we began our time together, friends, by considering the tension that exists between God and man, right? God desires that we be in relationship with him, Yet his perfection cannot dwell together with our sinfulness. Given that, this text in Exodus 24 shows us that when in right relationship with God, when in unbroken covenant, man can dwell and even eat together in unity with God. Now that's great, but there's still a problem. After all, it wasn't long before, as I noted, that Israel would break this covenant, and many of them would die. So is our relationship, therefore, limited to a few moments with God when our hearts and minds are altogether pure and cleansed? Because if so, I don't know about you guys, but I'm out. Okay, I, I have no hope. I'm just not that good of a person. I'm often selfish. I lack self-control. I neglect God and others. I get angry at people I should be loving. That, that's, my, that's my life. That's what I look like. So I, may, I could try to console myself by, by, by uh, not you know, declaring that I haven't committed the more egregious sins. I haven't killed anybody. Okay, so maybe I can console myself with that, but God isn't consoled by it. Like, you know, can, can I show up to dinner with God? And just plop on down next to him and be like, no, 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 it's, it's cool, God. It's cool, you know, because, I mean, I, I know I've spoken harshly to my wife. I may have fibbed a little bit on my taxes, and I've broken any number of the laws of the land and thereby dishonored your holy name. But it's okay, because I haven't killed anybody. Aren't you proud of me, God? No way! God is not going to be impressed with that. I mean, imagine if I came home from work one day and one of my sons runs up to me and says, Daddy, oh, I'm so glad you're here. Listen, guess what? I didn't kill anybody today. Can I have some ice cream? 
I mean, would I be, would I be impressed? <laughs> like, would I be like, oh, oh, my son, I'm so very proud of you. You know, you, you, you have expra- ex- practiced uh, extreme self-restraint in not ending a human life today. Well done, my lad. No, my friends, if, we, if we're thinking about, about ourselves in that way, then if we, you know, if we are impressed with our own goodness in light of God's holiness, then it does not reveal how very good we are, but how very, very low and incorrect our view of God's holiness is. And someone with that mindset is not welcome at God's dinner table. So is there any hope for us not quite murdering but still bad people? Is ongoing relationship with God possible? And let's push this further. What if you are a murderer? What if you have killed someone? Is your standing before the Lord, the God of creation, forfeit? Is there any hope for you? Or or, or, are you already damned? Just going through life, waiting, anticipating, fearfully dreading the wrath of the Lord that's going to fall on you when you stand in his presence. Is there any hope for you? Friends, the answer to that question is, it depends. It depends on what covenant you are in with the Lord. See, the covenant God made with Israel here had two parts. There was the part God had to do, and then there was the part that Israel had to do. Now, since God is altogether perfect and and altogether powerful and altogether truthful, we needn't wonder whether he's going to break his side of the covenant. We know that he won't. But Israel did break their side, just like you and I do. So, in that covenant, there is no hope. There's only remaining for us the curse for breaking it. But that's not the only covenant that God has made. Many years later, God sent another Moses to his people, his own son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus told Israel that he was ratifying a new covenant, a better one. Do you remember the five aspects of ratifying a covenant? Let's consider them again in light of Jesus. Number one is clear terms. For three years of ministry, Jesus laid out clear terms for this new covenant. And just as Moses reiterated those terms multiple times, so we have four Gospels about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to make it abundantly clear what the terms are. Number two is promises. God made many promises to us in Jesus. To name just a few, he will be with us. He will work all things together for good. He will comfort us in our trials. He will give us relief from our burdens. He will give us abundant life, and he will give us living water. And so you would expect, if those are the promises on this side, you would expect that we would make promises to God. After all, Israel said again and again that all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And no doubt they meant it, but it didn't work. It couldn't work. The sin within us leads us astray every time. And so in this new covenant, God himself, through Jesus, 
fulfilled not just his side, but our side too. He had both of them taken care of. We ourselves couldn't do it, so he did it for us. That's the kind of promises in the New Covenant. Number three is memorial. Jesus left us a memorial. In Luke chapter 22, we see that Jesus, quote, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in what? In remembrance of me. This is a memorial. Communion, the Lord's Supper, which we perform together here monthly at Grace Fellowship Church, is a memorial in remembrance of what Christ has done. Number four, sacrifice. If we look again at Luke 22, we see these words, quote, And likewise, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is what? The new covenant. How? In my blood. This is the new covenant. How? By the blood of oxen? By the, by the blood of the people? No! It's in Jesus' blood. He himself, he himself did this. He would be the sacrifice. Okay, so, so we have these, these four things. Jesus laid out clear terms. He made promises. He left this memorial. He made a sacrifice of himself. The fifth one is the curse. But there is no curse. There is no curse. There can't be. Because this time, God is responsible for the whole thing. He did both sides. The covenant cannot be broken because there's no one to break it. So there is no curse. The relationship is secure. So friends, hear this wonderful truth. Your ability to be in relationship with God is not in your goodness. Your goodness doesn't come into play at all. Our ability under the new covenant is based on Jesus' goodness alone, which is flawless. So let's ask our original question once more. How can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? The answer is through unbroken covenant with God. How can we be in unbroken covenant with God? Only through the new covenant in Jesus Christ. If we are willing to base our relationship with God in Jesus and what he has done for us rather than in ourselves, our obedience, and our goodness, we are welcome at God's table. We are welcome to come up to the Lord to dwell in covenant. Now, Moses, Aaron, and the others didn't fully understand this. They didn't know what Jesus Christ would come and do for them. Not yet. All they knew is that he had gotten, that they had gotten to come up and eat with the Lord. For them, as we pass out of verse 11, the meal is over, and we enter into verse 12, the time in the presence of God has come to an end. But God is not done. He's not done increasing the unity between he and his people. It wasn't time for Christ to come yet, but what we're about to see is yet another vivid picture of who Christ would be and what he would do. This is the next point on your outline. Come up to the Lord to dwell forever. Let me read verse 12 through the end of the chapter. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment. 
which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose, rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and her are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Okay, let's look at this passage. Verse 12 begins with Moses and Joshua being called up further up the mountain, closer to God. It would seem that God had written his own copy of the terms of the covenant, just as Moses did, but God did his on tablets of stone, and he was going to give them to Moses and Joshua. It also seems that Moses somehow knew that he was going to be gone a while, and so he left Aaron and her in charge, which, as we'll find out later, was actually not that great of an idea. Then he goes up, and what a sight it was. The mountaintop is consumed by the glory of the Lord, which looked like a devouring fire to the Israelites watching below. That must have been utterly terrifying. It's unlike any storm they'd ever seen. What incredible power the Lord has. In recent history, the Israelites watched as Pharaoh's kingdom was ravaged through ten plagues. And then they watched all of his mightiest warriors drown, crushed in the Red Sea as it, as, as it piled over top of them while Israel went through on dry land. And now, at, at the, this mountain, there is, it's burning there's a consuming fire on top of this mountain. What a sight that must have been to see the mountaintop blazing in the sky with hundreds of thousands of Israelites camped below and all that lies between them is the silhouette of an altar and 12 pillars separating them from this consuming fire. That was the covenant. That's what rep that represented. Moreover, it seems appropriate that this great story of Israel's salvation would begin back in Exodus chapter 3 at another mountain with a bush that burned but was not consumed. And then this story culminates here in Exodus 24 at another mountain that itself burned but was not consumed. In Exodus 3, God told Moses, do not come near. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses was told to come near, come up to the Lord. And so, in verse 18, Moses entered the cloud and went up to him for 40 days and 40 nights. What we'll see in the next six chapters is that during those 40 days and nights, God not only gives Moses those tablets of stone with the law and the commandment written on them, but he lays out plans for a portable structure known as the tabernacle, which means the dwelling, God's dwelling. The structure and the contents of this building, of this structure that we are about to hear about, will be described in great detail. We'll look at them over the coming weeks. But a major theme is this, that most of Israel has to stay on the outside. It goes with them, but they're on the outside, in God's presence, but not near. Some may come inside where there's even greater presence of God, greater beauty, but there's still a separation. And only one may come all the way in to be where God himself dwells. Now that should sound awfully familiar to us, because that's in fact the same thing that's been happening right here in this chapter, right? 
The people stayed below. In God's presence, they could see the burning mountain, but not near. Some could come partway up where they ate with God, but were not yet near. And only Moses came all the way up where God himself dwells. So what is the significance of that? There's clearly some parallel. What would this text have meant to Israel? It is this. God does not want Israel to have only this one-time experience with him at Mount Sinai. Yes, the covenant and the burning mountaintop are unique. All that they experience today will no doubt, no doubt be remembered and pondered and spoken about for generations. But the Lord is not only a God of memories, but of active, intimate involvement in the lives of his people. So on that mountaintop, God lays out for Moses his scheme for constructing a movable Mount Sinai. And so God will go with his people wherever they go. He will go with them, guiding and directing them as they move into the land that he promised in the covenant. The very structure of the tabernacle that will go with Israel will serve as a constant reminder of both God's holiness and his desire for relationship. It will remind Israel that an altogether holy God is also an altogether intimate God. It will remind Israel that an altogether holy God wants to dwell among his altogether unholy people. So when God called Moses into that burning mountain to receive the instructions for the tabernacle, he was, in fact, expressing his desire that someday all his people would come up to the Lord so that they could dwell with him forever. But how? How can a holy God dwell among an unholy people such as Israel and such as us? Once again, the answer is Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John tells us that when Jesus was born, the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is literally the word tabernacle. Jesus was born into the world so that a holy God could dwell with his unholy people. How did he do that? First, by living a sinless life. He perfectly fulfilled in that sinless life all of the words that the Lord has spoken. He did what Israel could not and did not. Then he died the death that we deserve to die. The curse for breaking God's commands should have fallen on us but Jesus took them on himself. In doing so, he perfectly fulfilled all of the regulations of the covenant. In doing so, he tore down the dividing walls between God and man. Anything that kept us separate, he wrecked it. In doing so, he he leveled Mount Sinai. He, He tore down the dividers in the tabernacle. From the point of Jesus forward, all men are welcome to come and dwell with God. How do you do it? In a new covenant, forever, through Jesus. And so, friends, the the covenant is completely fulfilled. It's ratified, it's fulfilled, the way is open. We can come up to dwell with God. And all that is required is choosing to come to Him through Jesus Christ. I don't know where my last page of notes is, but thankfully I know the ending. Because this is what Christianity is all about, right? It's about dwelling with God. It's, a, it's, it's why we come together here 
Because we know that God is in our presence. He wants to dwell with us. It's, it's why we, we spend time studying God's word individually on our own. It's why we have growth groups at this church and why we have small group discussions right afterwards. It's because we want to be in God's presence and dwell with him. We want to know what is it like to be with God. How can we be in covenant with him, dwell with him forever? Well, it's all through Jesus Christ. When, we're in, when we suffer, when we rejoice, no matter what God brings us, we want to be in his presence. We want to dwell. We want to do it together. That's what it means to dwell. That's what it means to be a Christian. And that's why when we have this good news, this gospel of Jesus Christ, it's why we tell other people about it. We invite them in and we tell them what we already know, that there is a holy God who is our heart's desire. Everything that we long for in this life, whether we know it or not, is in God. And he invites us to come up and dwell with him. That's amazing. We can be in his presence. And that's why we tell people. That's why we invite them. We don't need to come up to God anymore. Because Jesus leveled the mountain. We just come. We just come to him and we invite others to come with us. And so we don't have to have some... We don't have to have our acts together. We don't have to say, well, I haven't murdered anyone and I've paid all my taxes and everything. That doesn't, that doesn't impress God. That's our response to him, but it is not the requirement. All of us are welcome to come and dwell with him forever. So put aside your good works. Stop trying to earn your way to God. If you're here today and you do not know what this dwelling with God looks like, if you heard from Exodus 24, the the middle of this strange story about blood being thrown around, and you're thinking, I don't have that kind of relationship with God, then I invite you to come to him. Come through the blood of Jesus in the new covenant. It cannot be broken. You can be safe and secure in God's presence forever. Would you come and dwell with God forever through Jesus Christ? Let me pray for us. Oh God, we desire to be in your presence. We are amazed that a God who is so different, so set apart from us, would even want to be with us. And and then our sin, which consumes us and overwhelms us so often, keeps us separated. Your perfection cannot dwell with us, but you found a way through the blood of Jesus. We are so grateful, God, for this amazing gift you have given us in Christ. He paid it all. He paid our way. He covered both sides of the covenant. His blood makes us look perfect in your sight and so we can dwell. God, we could not keep the covenant, but Christ did. We could not be in your presence, so Christ brought us in. And Jesus, I pray that if there's anyone here in this room who doesn't know you, that you would reveal yourself to them, even through Exodus 24. Thank you, God, for being with us, for dwelling with us here in this place, even as we sing praises to you now. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.